don't hit that skip button because I have huge news for you. The Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt lives. It is here. It is available to purchase. Oh, yes, I'm not kidding. We finally got our Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt out, and it's amazing. It is printed by the same company that prints for Cavity Colors and Fright Rags, which if you're a hardcore horror fan who buys a lot of horror t-shirts, I know I do, you know that's the very best and highest quality because we couldn't do anything less for our fans. It's an amazing full-color design designed by Jason Ragosta. It's very cool. It features a zombified myself, a zombified Damon, and it looks just like an awesome horror shirt because that's what we want because we're horror fans too. So we wanted to make a t-shirt that you could really sink your teeth into. Go to rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com. Again, that's rewindofthelivingdead.bigcartel.com to get your t-shirt today. Rewind of the Living Dead is a review show, so spoilers are ahead. Longtime friends James Wan and Lee Wanell shot to stardom after their first film, Saw, became a breakout hit, with the movie earning over $100 million at the box office, which was more than 10 times the initial budget for the film. That led to numerous opportunities for the duo, but unfortunately they didn't find as much success with their next project, Dead Silence, and Wan's follow-up as a director with Death Sentence struggled as well. Just as Juan was ready to take a break from filmmaking, he got a call that a new production company was starting from the team behind the smash hit Paranormal Activity, and they asked if Juan and Juanel might want to team up again for another genre movie. Juanel remembered he had an idea years earlier that could develop into a new film, so he started hammering away on a script. About halfway through, Juanel noticed there wasn't much blood or gore in his script, which gave him the idea to pitch the movie as a PG-13 film rather than going for an R rating. On the surface, the film appeared to be just another haunted house story until a major twist turns the movie on its head. The story centers around a family tormented by ghosts when their son slips into a mysterious coma, but even after leaving their home behind, the spirits soon come calling again. The perfect home, the perfect family, the perfect life. Good night, sweetie. Critics are calling Insidious, the scariest movie in decades. Coming into Dalton's room, there's something in there with it. Disturbing. I want to leave this house. The scariest horror film since Poltergeist. It's not the house that's haunted. It's your son. From the makers of Paranormal Activity. In theaters April 1st. In the latest episode of Rewind of the Living Dead, we're going to tiptoe through the window and astral project to the further as we review the 2010 horror film Insidious. Living Dead. I'm Damon Martin. And I'm Patrick Guerra. And Patrick, this week on the hills, or on the uh, eve, I should say, of another insidious movie opening, which we will be reviewing here on this very podcast, we've decided to travel back 13 years to the launch of Blumhouse Studios and the first film they produced, Insidious. Mm, this is insidious. Now I remember insidious from the theater, Damon. I actually went and saw this one because there was a lot of hype around it. It's funny how this is, I didn't never put two and two together. That this is Blumhouse's first movie. 
the buzz i don't know at the time for you but the buzz at the time for me was this was as scary as a fucking movie could get yeah so i didn't know about this being the blumhouse what i when i was doing research on the film i saw that it was oren pell and and the filmmakers behind paranormal activity and jason blum after paranormal activity exploded as people do, they started their own production company, and that's what eventually became Blumhouse, which I had no idea that's how it happened. I had no idea that's the origin of Blumhouse. I knew Jason Blum and obviously very familiar with their history and horror, but I did not know that's actually how it launched. And so that's this was this. They pitched Juan and, and Juan L on doing it, and boom, we get this film. So you have a different experience with Insidious than I do. This is the reverse of our Jennifer's Body podcast, where I had seen Jennifer's Body, not in the theater, but I saw it shortly thereafter. Um, and I'd seen it since then. You had never seen it. I'm the reverse. I had not seen Insidious until four nights ago. Um, I never, I, and I'll tell you why. And here's the reason. This is a horrible thing to admit, Patrick, but I'm being honest when I say there's two reasons I never saw Insidious until now. One, I'm kind of lukewarm on haunted house stories because that's what this seemed to be on the on the surface. And by the way, we're spoilers all the way. The film's been out for 13 years, so we're not like we're not hiding spoilers in this in this podcast <laughs> today. Um, I thought it was it looked like a haunted house movie. I'm kind of lukewarm on haunted house movies because in general they do start to feel a little generic. Now you could say that about slashers. You could say that about exorcism films. You can say about any, you know, you know, any part of the horror genre, you can say things can get generic. And I would agree to some extent, you can say a lot of them get the, the sub genres do get generic at times, but with horror, with haunted house horror films, I'm always kind of like, eh, you know, it's a little bit of wishy-washy with me. Like sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're very mediocre. And the other reason, and the reason why I just kind of tuned out was, it was rated PG-13. Mm -hmm. And I've 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 said on this podcast numerous times we know the Scream effect. When Scream came out in 1996 and it was R-rated of course, but it, it attracted such a teen audience, such a young audience that the filmmakers, the studios who are making the money, they're like, "Hold on now. If we just take out a couple little things, some language, some blood, and maybe the boobs, whatever we got to remove, we can make this PG-13 and suddenly open it up to a much bigger audience now there are a couple of those pg-13 horror films that were okay but by and large they just got so colored by numbers that it got really boring yeah. repetitive and not good it just was not horrific there was nothing hurt so i really became like the guy against pg-13 horror i was like this just isn't real horror this is just watered down you know, uh, Dawson's Creek bullshit. Like this isn't good. <laughs> so when insidious came out and I do remember when it came out, cause I was back into horror at that point in 2010, it looked like a haunted house movie and it was PG 13. Immediately. I'm like, I'm out. <laughs> and so I never saw this movie. See, and I never had that back then. I did not have that bias against PG 13 movies. I was just so used to kind of going and seeing, um, horror movies that didn't really go that hard anyway. So I, I wasn't even paying attention to the ranks because I was like, they're not really going to be scary. It's just going to be a bunch of like mopey teens and 20 year olds like doing their thing on screen. Um, and I completely actually ignored Insidious as, as, it, as it was released. I was like, oh, okay, I see there's some new horror movie out and supposedly it's really scary. The trailer I remember thinking was like, oh, it looks okay, but I don't really care. So what happened was a bunch of my friends were like, dude, we saw it and you have to go see this with us. <laughs> they wanted to see it a second time. They were really, really, really hype about it. And I'm going to give a shout out right now to one of them 
because he's a longtime listener to this podcast, and that's my buddy Miguel. What up, Big Migs? Um, he, he's been listening to this podcast probably since the very beginning, and uh, and he was one of those very, very excited friends of mine who was just like, dude, you got to see this. Turns out I even sat next to Migs at the theater while we watched it, and, and I'm going to say this right now if he doesn't remember this. I just remember there were like scenes in the movie where I could hear him going, <laughs> like he was freaking out. Like he was genuinely like shaking in his boots. And I will say this for at least the first, I would say 30 minutes of this movie, I was deeply impressed. And in the theater, I remember going, this is scary. This is something that like is, uh, is, is clever. Um, I thought, I thought they played really well on just sort of like the more juvenile fears that I had, you know, like somebody walking outside the window, seeing somebody in the window, seeing somebody in the shadows, like all of that, that play was really good. And I, and I was already familiar with James Wan from saw and I, and I knew his reputation. And so I was like, well, like it's, it's working for me. And then there is a point in the movie and I'm, I bet you could guess when that is. There's a point in the movie where the tone shifts. And when that tone shifts, like the movie kind of lost me. And I'm curious, like uh, now you're, you're someone who didn't, you know, watch it necessarily uh, back that you said you watched it a couple days ago, right? Yeah. Like four days ago. Yeah. Yeah. So did you have, what, what was your experience with it? So I'm kind of with you. The first 30 minutes, it was a film dripping with dread. Cause you knew something was happening. You knew something bad was happening and there was a looming, sense of dread throughout the entire film and you know and and they compared a little bit to poltergeist which i've said on this show i loved and scared the piss out of me when i was a kid um that was one of the first films that truly terrified me as a child when i saw it so this one kind of had a little bit of that feeling to it where you know something's off but you're not quite quite sure what when they really started amping things up i immediately i immediately took myself out of it a little bit and i said okay this is good because i knew it was pg-13 going in so i said immediately this is going to be jump scare central now i'm certainly not against jump scares i'm a slasher movie fan a big part of slasher movies is jump scares that's that's uh jason and freddie and michael myers bread and butter ghost face that's their bread and butter jump scares but I, I got a feeling right away like what it was going to be and when and so i will say i didn't figure out the twist right away until they moved obviously when they moved houses i i picked it up right away that something was haunting the kid not the house but um which by the way that's straight out of paranormal activity yeah so that was that was again interesting that 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 kept me on the hook a little bit because it up to that point it did feel like a very generic horror film or very generic haunted house film with the exception of the kid in the, in the coma, which was different. Like they did put that into it, which was a little different. Um, but yeah, about 30 minutes in when it really ramped up and you kind of started to figure out it was ghosts and it just got a little hokey. I kind of tuned out a little bit. And then when it was the jump scares, I'm not going to say they weren't effective. We did when we did um, Sinister a while back. It was when that study came out, the scientific study of the scariest films where they had people watch horror films and they literally had them on like machines where they tested their blood was their blood pressure, heart rate, whatever it is to see like what and insidious at the time. I think they redid it. And uh, they redid it, and our buddy Jed Shepard's movie Host is actually number one now. But the, the the original the original test that was done 
Number one was Sinister, which is what we did our podcast on. And number two, I think number two was Insidious, if I'm not mistaken. Number three was The yeah. Conjuring, which is another James Wan movie. Um, so I was like, okay, I was infinitely curious. Now, I have to say, to be honest, honest about this, Patrick, like this is a film that when I watch it, I say to myself, myself and Patrick as hardcore horror fans are going to come out of this movie going, eh, it was all right. <laughs> yeah. But the general audience mm-hmm. is going to be jumping out of their seats because you and I, I guarantee, and this isn't like a pat ourselves on the back. In a way, it kind of, you know, we've actually said this, like it in a, a little bit kind of ruins them for us because we don't get got. Like we don't get got yeah. by these movies very often. I saw every jump scare in this movie coming. The big mm-hmm. one, which we will eventually get to, the one that everyone freaks out about, which I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, the one the one mm-hmm. scare with the red devil face guy, that scare is the one. That's the one that supposedly sends people's heart rates through the freaking roof because no one sees it coming. It's in the middle of the day, you know, all those kind of things. I I had no idea what that was. No idea what that was. And when it happened, I was like, oh, okay. That was my reason. Like, All right. But again, I want to be clear about this, Patrick. The, the the casual audience, anyone who's not like so desensitized to horror, I see the appeal. I do see the appeal. You know what's interesting is so, you know, we talk about this all the time that we use our, our significant others as gauges, right? I think it's safe to say that your girlfriend and my wife at this point are now actually seasoned horror connoisseurs yeah because they they watch just as much horror as we do because they're usually sitting in the couch right next to us while we watch it um and and i do consider my wife at this point like a horror uh uh, you know regular she watches a lot of horror movies but i know when something's gonna get her she had never seen insidious (laughs) so i go i'm gonna watch insidious for the podcast you should watch it with me because i know it's gonna scare you so i even gave her the preamble like I'm already preparing you for the idea that it's going to scare you. Now that you think would like diffuse somebody a little bit. They're like, all right, well, I'm getting ready to be scared. So it's going to lessen the blow. I mean, we should have put out puppy pads. She was about to piss her pants. She was so damn scared. This movie, she was, she was freaked out at this movie. Um, me less. So obviously it was my second viewing, but I'll say this. You remember you talk about the, the red face guy scare the, the face on fire guy or whatever he is. I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, the trailer that they played that played everywhere for insidious. And back then there were like far fewer trailers that got played. They play that in the trailer. They do. Yeah, they do. They give you the best scare in the trailer. So I remember being in the theater going, Oh, this is the part where you're going to see his face and they do it. And I was like, well, that ruined it. Like that totally ruined there. We'll get some best scares later. But like, there were things that I I thought were far more scary than that. Yeah. And then and then you get into like, I mean, I, I suppose we should talk plot at some point. But once you really start revealing the monsters, they get less and less and less scary. Like the dread lifts at about the 30 minute mark or the halfway mark of this movie, somewhere around there. Um, the, the dread in this movie just kind of lifts for me personally. But it worked for my wife like all the way to the end. Yeah. And that's what I like when they. it's almost it's weird to say this. It's almost like there's too many ghosts. Like when they start, like when there's just so many ghosts in the yes. second half of the movie, it's like I'm just waiting for the next one to appear. Like I'm not surprised at all because there's they're coming around every corner and every open door and every window. And like every time something happens, you know, it's a different ghost. And they really just kind of bombard it with that. Now, I will say. 
There were a couple, I will say one other moment, and I'm not giving away my favorite scare, but one other moment that actually was legitimately creepy that I liked a lot um, that had really no jump scares. And this is what I'm talking about. Like, you don't necessarily have to just, you know, bait us into a jump scare. One of my favorite scenes in the movie was when Lynn Shay's character shows up and she's like a medium. I don't really know what you want to call her. Um, And she's a paranormal investigator. I'll just leave it at that. And she's got a pair of guys with her, one of which is played by Lee Wanell. Um, And she's got the weird gas mask on and she's like talking through it in like a weird tube to Lee Wanell's character. And it's just like she's kind of shaking and she's talking and he's like transcribing and scribbling notes and drawing that was that to me was way creepier than most of the other jump scares in the second half of the movie. Now, again, I keep saying this because I want to make sure I'm not, I don't want to insult anyone who loves this movie because I get it. I do. My girlfriend's yeah. the same way as your wife. Like she was just she actually might funny enough every, uh, for me being the horror, horror aficionado. My girlfriend had actually seen this years ago. She saw it in the theater before I mm. like she saw it before we before we got together. Um so I so she's like it was her second time seeing it and it, was, it definitely still got her in those moments. So I get it. Like the I understand why this film is so loved and why it's so scary to you know to horror audiences. I do get it. But I would say that the film loses a lot of the momentum it builds up in the first half when it's just being hinted. Then they just start hitting you over the head with it in the second half of the film. But I will say that scene with the gas mask where she's traveling into the further and talking to, you know, talking to Dalton and, and trying to, you know, tra- and then translating it back out to, to Lee Wanell's character. And he's scribbling and writing and drawing that to me was like legitimately creepy. Like that felt creepier than the ghost popping up around every corner. You know what I think about this movie? Because that gas mask kind of brings up something that I had in my notes, which is like, and by the way, this is a very, very low budget movie uh, for the time. And, and Blumhouse actually is famous for keeping movies under a certain budget. I think their their cap is like, I think, 10 million. It's somewhere around there. And this was done uh, for like 700,000 or something like that? 1.5 million. 1.5 million. Okay. According to IMDb Pro. But this motherfucker made a hundred million worldwide. That's yeah. a big return on investment, like a massive return on investment. Um, but the, the point uh, that I was getting to, excuse me. <coughs> um, it felt like at 1.5 million, like a really, really, really well-funded and executed student film. Like all these choices were odd and kind of goofy at times. And I knew James Wan from Saw, and it, it was kind of jarring to me because I was like, well, James Wan's like, like he does like really cool stuff. And this this movie didn't come across to me as cool as much as it came across to me as goofy. And I mean that like from the lighting to the you know execution of certain scares to the camera movement, which James Wan is very famous for, um, I, I found all of it to be like weird in, in, in its own way. And that probably is what made it stand out. Um, but it, it, it must, there must've just been something to the idea of like, we barely have any money to make this happen. Um, so, so let's let our creativity kind of heighten this thing because there's not much there. It's essentially a contained horror. It's contained in two houses. There's not much, there's not much else that happens outside of the two houses that they're in. Um, but despite me thinking it's weird, it made me realize like, oh, like everything that kind of became Blumhouse and the Blumhouse style of scary movie really starts here. Like all the weird like ghosts and the Dutch angle and the like, like the, like this, the face. And then all of a sudden the face is smiling, like stuff like weird, the weird little touches 
it seemed to permeate from that point on throughout all the Blumhouse movies. Like all Blumhouse movies kind of feel not the same, but they kind of they kind of like they have the same DNA. And I think it's because of the success of Insidious. Well, you can definitely see the DNA in Insidious when you watch The Conjuring, which I was the reverse. Yes. I had seen The Conjuring before I saw Insidious. And we did The Conjuring, of course. Was it last year or the year before last when the, when the sequel came I out? Um because we did the devil made me do it we did the original conjuring and i had never again until four days ago i'd never seen insidious but now seeing insidious there were several moments where i'm like i can see how this fed into what happened when james wan did the conjuring and that's not a bad thing by the way i'm not saying like a knock but i see how and so what you're saying makes 110 percent fact because i felt the same way because when i was watching insidious after already seeing the conjuring i was like there's elements so many elements of insidious that he injected into conjuring and we we both we for the most part praised the conjuring it was a really really well done movie and by the way yeah. i'm not i'm not saying insidious is bad by any, any stretch of the no, imagination yeah, that's not what I'm saying. um it just didn't but again i i went in like i didn't go in i didn't go in with any preconceived notion although i did know that you know this movie was supposedly one of the scariest movies ever and i knew right away it's pg-13 so my initial assumption was they're going to be jump scares you can't have gore and and you know crazy sequences of violence because it's not going to get a pg-13 rating so i knew going in it was going to be jump scares and and again i'm not above getting gotten by jump scares i'm not i've gotten they've, they've gotten me a couple times in movies where i've jumped in my seat i'm not gonna lie about it um but i saw most of it coming in this film but i will say as you said the dna of what this film created that might honestly be this film's biggest legacy if you think about it because yes the Conjuring universe, by and large, is is one of the biggest horror franchises out there. Period. I mean, it spawned spinoffs. I mean that that yeah. that that rarely happens in horror. I mean, we are used to sequels. We're not used to, you know, the the these Conjuring spawning Annabelle sequels and now the Nun. Like they're doing two Nun films. Like and those are all yeah. spinoffs of Conjuring. Um, that is a massive horror franchise. And you don't get, in my opinion, you don't get to The Conjuring without Insidious. I don't think James Wan makes The Conjuring if he doesn't make Insidious first. So while I'm not I'm certainly not insulting this film or or saying it's bad or anything like that, I'm just saying that like in a weird way, this was the you know this was the juice that that gave him the ability to squeeze for Conjuring and and what became an even bigger franchise. Absolutely. No, I think I think what it it did is it showed the studio like, wow, if we let James Wan kind of do his thing, it means big bucks for us. Like that formula was like right on the money. It was like, let's not spend a ton of money, but let's make sure that our that our uh, and, and this is part of their philosophy is like, if we don't spend a ton of money, then really what we do is we let we let the director do their thing. Like we really let them push that envelope and 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 create their vision. And I think James Wan did that and he built a cinematic universe out of it. I even saw like touches of Malignant in there. Yeah. I remember when we talked about Malignant, we were like, oh yeah, it's kind of like a weird like 90s, like made for TV movie style thing. That's kind of how Insidious feels at a, at a lot of different parts. Like it has that same DNA in it um, where it almost looks like a horror Hallmark movie sometimes. Um, it, yeah, so I, it's really interesting. It's like, it's like a case study. It's like, oh, like, this us ushered in 10 years of a style and like and pretty much solidified Blumhouse as like a horror powerhouse. I mean, 
let's keep in mind they went on to do the Halloween movies. They're they're going to you know work on the uh, the the Exorcist movie that's coming out soon uh, with James Wan. They've actually merged with James Wan's company now. So these two things are so interlinked, and this was the moment. This was the moment that the bomb went off. It was with Insidious. Um, now I want to talk a little bit, Damon, about like my. I guess dislikes of this movie, you know, like, I guess it's weird. That's, you know, I'm not, I'm not here like trashing it or anything, but it was, I, it, it, the same things that bothered me back when I saw this in 2010 still bother me now. And that was not when Elise showed up, but when her associates showed up it all of a sudden, like the Ghostbusters were in this movie. It was like super weird. Like this, like this movie gets to a point and it gets like really legitimately scary where I was like, yeah, this is scary. I see why, I see why my friends were like dragging me to their second showing of it. Cause they were like, you gotta see how scary this movie is. And I was like, yeah, it's scary. Like it's good. Like they, like this is really well put together. And then those guys show up. And I mean, it's just like the movie shifts on a dime to something silly in in my opinion i mean there's still some intensity in it but even just like you know basic plot is um josh lambert and and his and his wife renee's son dalton um they believe he goes into a coma but it turns out uh, doctors can't figure out what's wrong with him and um Renee is convinced that it's the house, you know, some, something is going on with the house. She, now she's seeing like spirits everywhere and she's freaking the fuck out. And finally Josh is like, okay, it, maybe it is. So let's just, let's just pack up and leave this house that we just moved into. Um, and when they go to the new house, the same problems are there. And, uh, and then there's this tipping point where his, his, his room gets completely, uh, Dalton's room gets completely fucked up. And uh, and Josh relents because he's been the skeptic this whole time. And he goes, fine, bring in, bring in some paranormal people. And like. It's like, did they mean to make the paranormal people so ridiculous? That that it it paints <laughs> like it, it like put me in Josh's shoes for a second, because you'd just be like, get the fuck out of here with all your ridiculous shit. Like, this is stupid. Yeah. Like, like the way they were behaving was goofy. And it and it it was all on the heels. I mean, it was literally like one of the scariest scenes in the movie, and then switched to now it's kind of a funny movie. That really bugged me. Well, this is one hundred percent the you know, this is one hundred percent poltergeist. I mean, this is exactly what happens to poltergeist when Carol Ann gets pulled into the television and she disappears. They call in the paranormal the, the paranormal investigators and they show up. Now the difference with those paranormal investigators was, in my opinion, you've seen Poltergeist, right? Oh yeah. Um oh, yeah. they were kind of creepy. Like they were kind of yeah. creepy and like they were they were like um legitimately scared of the house. Like they were scared of what was going on themselves. When the paranormal investigators show up in this one, it just kind of feels goofy. Um, yeah, I, I it was the those, Ghostbusters. Yeah, like it, it, they it, they injected a little bit too much comedy into that. Like with the pair with Lee Wan L and his buddy who were doing it, uh, Specs and Tucker, I think were their names. That's um, right. They were just kind of like the comedy relief in a film that didn't really need or have comedy relief. <laughs> like it was weird. Like it, it, like when you, I know that it's a totally different film, but like when you watch Scream as a good example like there are funny moments almost from the beginning you know what i mean like, there's yeah. jokey comical moments this film had none of that until they showed up like it was very somber very serious 
you know, the wife uh, played by Rose Byrne, which, by the way, I, I want to mention this, and we'll get into performances and stuff a little later in categories. Um, I always say when you can, you know, bring in really, really good actors to your to your project, you do raise the level. Now, for a one point five million dollar film, which in which in Hollywood terms is like pocket change, um, yeah. to get Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne in your film. Uh, and you know, as the two stars, you've already, you're already winning the race right there because those mm-hmm. are two really, really good actors. Um, but it was a very somber, serious kind of haunting film with this, the little boy. You have children. I don't, but like, that's always hits a little closer to home when it's involving a child, right? Like when it's a oh, yeah. little 10 year old kid going into a coma and like things like that, that's scary. The whole thing was very somber, and you know Rose Burns' character is you know, basically like, "We got to get out of here, or I'm getting the fuck out of here. Like, we're not staying here." And so they move, and then when they realize it follows them there, like it's very creepy. And even the priest, like when they have the priest scene comes in, which is hilarious, by the way, the priest comes in, which we didn't. With the, the one of my favorite lines in the movie is when Josh uh, uh, Patrick Wilson's character comes home, and he's like. Ah, oh, you walk in your house, you find your wife with a priest. Sounds like the beginning of a joke. And I was like, yeah, that that that, that was one of my favorite lines. That actually was kind of funny. But they went from the priest, like which we assumed they were going to like exercise the house, and then we shift to the Ghostbusters, as you've called them. And it's just, <laughs> it was weird because Lynn Shay's character seemed, you know, more serious. But then you had the two guys who were kind of goofy, and I don't. It was yeah, I agree. It was a weird tonal shift to go from somber haunting terrified of our son being caught in this coma you may never wake up from to hey let's invite the goof troop in here and they're going to investigate the house and the tone shifted and and like i said now yeah. i will give credit with the gas mask scene i did like that scene i thought that was really well done um but yeah just that initial introduction like 20 minutes of that was just a really weird tonal shift it was and i think of like you know a movie that did it really well was the black phone because it had that one character who was like a conspiracy theorist and he was actually he thought he was on the 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 the, the, he was on the trail of this killer meanwhile he was living with the killer even no but like tonally he was funny but he fit into the world and that that was just the weirdest thing about this movie is like all of a sudden it just the world got wacky (laughs) and it and a a world that was like terrifying In, in in many in many ways in more ways than one became a silly world and I was like, I don't know, like, it, you know, and I get it. I'm sure someone was, you know, in the in the process of writing this movie or something was like, hey, like, it's kind of heavy. Like, we need to break it up with a little bit of fun. Like, it's it's really heavy. This kid's in a coma. And like, is there any way we can kind of make it more fun? And we're like, well, you know what? What if we take Elise's two uh, uh, compatriots and make them kind of the comic relief? I get that. But also, like it's got a tonally fit and it didn't tonally fit. It was goofy and it, and it remained goofy. I mean, they are silly throughout the movie. They're kind of like bumbling, yeah. which is, which can be fun. And there's a couple of moments, like I did laugh, like, uh, like when they're testing the flashes and, and, and Tucker's like, shit, like, <laughs> like that, that flash was a little too bright, but it was just, it was silly in a movie that I don't think needed silly. Um, and then the other thing that kind of got me was, once they get now they're now we this is another part of the plot so uh, once elise comes what what is revealed and what is a great twist to this movie that i actually appreciate and they allude to up until this point and then they reveal is that josh this happened to josh when he was a kid turns out josh is an astral projector he can he can take his conscious mind and move to other places and when he was young 
he he took it to a place where um, a, a spirit from from the further is what they're calling it, which is kind of the place where ghosts and things go to go to be that it latched onto him. And as he brought himself back, this this he brought this spirit back with him into his into his body. Um, and so his mom brought Elise in when he was young to help excise him of this situation. And now it's happening to his son who can also do that. So um, it was, it was a uh, oh shit. I'm gonna, now I'm going to lose my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> I hate when that happens. Well, but, but the, yeah, I yeah, appreciate, I appreciated the, I appreciated the uniqueness of that. I did because again, it yeah. felt like a very generic haunted house story at the beginning. And then when you come to find out it's not the house that's on it, it's the people. It's 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 yeah. Josh and his son Dalton who have this weird ability to astral project to another part of the universe, another part of the the, the universe, whatever you want to call it. It's like spiritual um, realm. Or yeah, something spiritual like realm, that. like the like limbo almost. Like that's where they're at. Like where the the souls of the damned are trapped. Like they're they're in neither heaven or hell. They're trapped in this like weird nether region. Um, and so that's where they are, and that's where you travel to. And when you go further and further into it, you get to like this part where you find the demons and the tortured souls and everything and that's why they that's where i lost my train of thought is that when he when he okay so at that point in the plot it's like okay the only way to get your son back he's stuck in that world he's not in a coma he's stuck in the further we need to send you into the further josh because you're the only one in here who knows that astral project so we're going to send you into the further and where i bumped up against was um now, obviously, it's a low budget movie, and they I think they did the best with the money and they creatively did it. But like that portion of the movie also seemed kind of goofy to me. Now, I'm curious your take on that part of the movie as him descending further and deeper into the further itself, what it's called. Um, did you like it? Because to me, it sort of almost had like a Nightmare on Elm Street vibe to it a little bit. But it was to me, it was kind of like, I don't know. It was what I think what it was is it was not scary like once we dove into that world i was not like i was like this is the design of this to me is very unscary so two things about that one i appreciate the creativity of it because as soon as they revealed what it was i was like oh this is the upside down in stranger things like this is an alternate (laughs) world of our own except this is the one where the spirits and the, uh, you know, the undead spirits and the damned spirits hang out okay i I, I can kind of dig that the problem I had was, like you said, when Josh goes under, it feels like we just went into a different Nightmare on Elm Street sequel where Freddy doesn't exist and nobody in there is really scary, funny, or interesting. Um, because, yeah. and and again, now, I really do enjoy low-budget horror. Now, 1.5 million sound, it is low-budget by all standards, but we can say there are a lot of films under 1.5 million that are brilliant and great films, but... Yeah, it kind of took me out of it, like the look of it. The look of it of like this weird, dark, shadowy spirit world just kind of took me out. Like I almost would have liked it better if it would have just been their house in reverse or their house and like, you know, it was, they, they try, in my opinion, they tried too hard to make it look like the spirit world version of their house. Like they're like, it's all like misty and like the fog machines are rolling and like student film. It's it's immediately dark. And like, (laughs) I was just like, this is a little hokey. Like this felt a little hokey. Um, 
Four the hokiest part to me was the the was the most designed part, which is where the 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 fire faced man actually resided. Yeah, it looked like a, like a fucking meatloaf music video. <laughs> like, what the fuck is this? He's gonna That's pop so out in any second. I expect the devil to watch out, and I would do anything <laughs> but I won't do that. <laughs> I just thought that, especially the fire faced guys, like yeah. his his layer where he was basically holding on. Uh, to little Dalton like that. I was like, this is straight out of the 1991 like, heavy metal music videos. I'm not trying to do a rewrite of the living dead. I really am not. But now that you say that, like, wouldn't it have been much scarier if you just go in, like you go into the, into the astral projection and you, you astral project into this world that is essentially a reverse, you know, a, 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 a layer underneath our world or however you want to say it. And for lack of a better word, they call it the further. I say like the upside down and stranger things. Yeah. So we go to that world and I know stranger things is like that as well, but like it's dark and foreboding and all those kind of things. But in, you know, there's constant storms in the air. I get all that, but you go there and it's basically, okay, it's dark. We can leave out the weird fog and stuff. That was kind of stupid. I didn't like that, but okay. It's dark. It's the reverse of our world. Okay, great. Let's start there. You go through the house and you're finding all the weird little ghosts and the weird family with the person killing themselves in front of it, which was a weird injection, but it was whatever, all that, all the weird ghosts we've seen, they all live there. Wouldn't it have been much scarier than, tr than tracking into like the basement and finding out that the demon faced God, whatever he's called is like, has like an actual meat meatloaf uh, layer down there. <laughs> Wouldn't it have been much scarier than as he goes room to room and he eventually gets to Dalton's room to open the room to Dalton's room. And you just see the red faced God, like holding his son's hand and like stroking his face, like very creepily yeah. or, or, you know, he's got his hand on his throat and he's just kind of like petting his hair or something very creepy like that that to me would have been a hundred times scarier because you're just like oh shit like this is why your son's not escaping the fucking thing's got his arm on him like it's got his hand around his throat that yeah. to me was scarier than him it literally looked like a scene out of hansel and gretel where the kid's got <laughs> his, his leg chained to the ground and i was just like really that's what you decided to go but again that's i can't we're, we're kind of we're kind of shitting on this part of the movie that's that's the part of the movie I didn't like. Like that's the part of the movie where it just felt hokey. It felt it felt generic and it felt it felt like again like they were trying to make their own Nightmare on Elm Street world but it wasn't nearly as inventive or creative as Freddy Krueger. Um it was yeah. just yeah, like the weird layer thing. Like it didn't make any sense and he's actually in like a weird boiler room too, which is hilarious. He's in a boiler room yeah. sharpening his his like sharp knife hands. Yeah, so like, like it's really for Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, so like I think it would have been much scarier just to open the kid's room and there you find like he's awake, he's not in a coma, he's trapped there. And here's yeah. this demon with his like arm around his throat that to me would have been much scarier the house was very scary like and and that's the first part of the movie like when they're just in their new home the home itself was scary so if he descended into the home and the home was like a reverse of itself or like basically they just took the footage and just reversed it in post so as he walked around the house the stairs were in a different side and all that stuff and it was dark and all that stuff like that would have worked all on its own like with the ghosts there and everything. And, and like you're saying, him going kind of from room to room, making his way to Dalton's room. I think all that would have been just scary enough. It was, and it's a choice. And I think James Wan is known for making like bolder choices than other people. It didn't work for me this time. Yeah.
Yeah, and again, like, I just think it was just a weird, like, I get it, and I do appreciate the creativity of the further, of it not being just another haunted house story, like, our son got touched by a demon, and now we're haunted, like, yeah, okay, I get it, like, that seems like whatever. This was actually, I'll give it credit, this was pretty creative, like, I like the fact that he was, like, slipping into another universe, basically, and astral projecting, I was like, okay, this is different, like, as soon as that happened, as soon as they made that revelation, Barbara Hershey's in this movie as well, by the way, which is, she's fantastic, I love seeing her in this movie, she's an incredible actress, she does a horror movie from the 80s called The Entity, which is by far one of the most fucked up horror films you will, have you seen The Entity? No, I've not. So The Entity, I'm not gonna, I don't wanna get too far off course, The Entity is about Barbara Hershey's character and she lives in a house she lives in a house with her kids and she starts getting assaulted by like a ghost like i've heard about that and it's like full-on like sexual assault and it's fucking wild and no one believes her and like you know she goes to a psychologist and like it is you're like watching this movie like holy i can't believe they made this uh it is really disturbing like it's full on like you know the accused jody foster except there's a ghost person doing all the crime uh it's creepy and weird and yeah so <laughs> if you haven't seen the entity uh be prepared if you do watch it it's a fucked up movie Buckle um, up. yeah but barbara hershey's in this movie and i was happy to see her and she does a good role playing josh's mother all that kind of stuff but yeah when they slipped in it's almost like i like the concept of the further better than the execution of the further like once we once we actually went there i was kind of like okay you've kind of taken me out of it now yeah and and on this viewing like i i remembered so little about how the like the plot kind of unfolded and i actually appreciated how the plot unfolded on the second viewing i was like yeah this is better this is better than your typical haunted house possession thing because it has nothing to do with the house at all it has to do with astral projection which is kind of a cool concept all on its own uh and the idea of like hey if you if you astral project too much you might pull something back you didn't want um yeah no that's actually that yeah i can give this movie a lot of credit for that let me ask you this patrick on a personal level Okay. We've all had nightmares. I actually know people who've had night terrors. I've never gone that far. Yeah. What's the What's the weirdest experience you've ever had when you've been sleeping? And I'm not about a nightmare, like your scariest nightmare. Like, what's the weirdest experience you've ever had? Because I'll tell you mine, and I've had it happen a couple of times. I've fallen into such a weird, and it's always, it's never been when I'm asleep at night. It's always been when I'm napping. But mm-hmm. I've fallen into such a weird deep sleep when I'm napping that when I've woken up, I've like not really like almost like sleep paralysis, like where I've woken up and feel like I'm I'm in a weird waking sleep state where I'm kind of awake and I'm kind of not. And like to the point where I literally can't move my arms and legs like I know, but I can't ever quite tell if I'm fully awake or if I'm just like waking up, if that makes sense. Like sure. I'm, and I've had that a couple of times. It's pretty freaky, very, very freaky when you wake up and you're like, I can't move my arms or legs. You're like laying there. But you're also like, am I actually awake? And then like you eventually start moving and wake up. But it's a weird experience. And I don't want to say it's sleep paralysis because I know that's a real thing. But yeah, like it, fe- thing. it feels like that a little bit. Like I woke up and I'm like, I can't move my arms. I can't move my legs. I can't get up. But I was like in a weird, like not quite sleeping wake state. So that's probably the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. I think the weirdest thing, I mean, like uh, there it's always been with a nightmare or some like super traumatic dream where I wake up and I'm kind of frozen for a moment. Like that's, that's about as like close to that as I would get. But I'll say this when I was a kid, I do remember being in a sort of um, like in a dream, like floating or some shit like that. And I got scared and woke up and I swear, Damon, I fell like minimum six inches down and hit my bed. 
And I don't know if I was like sitting up in my sleep. I don't know when you're when you're little. Believe me, I got little kids sleeping upstairs right now. They do weird <laughs> shit in the middle of the night. They just do. So I don't know if I was like half sitting up or something, but I physically could feel myself falling from a height that was not like I was clearly not laying down. And it always made me feel like I was like, was I fucking floating? And then I just fucking fell like that. Like <laughs> I, that's about the freakish weird one. The coolest thing with my dreams, Damon. Now we're getting on this tangent is that I, in the last few years, am really good at now controlling my dreams. I just did it last night. So you are the dream master. You are Alice. I'm a dream fucking master. Lisa Wilcox, where you at? Like, I can, I I did it last night. I was like, like, the dream is starting to get out of control, and I fucking grabbed it and played it like a goddamn video game. And I was like, this rules. Like, this is great. I I don't dream enough to do it all the damn time, but I've done it many times. I've, like, literally flown away i was like eh, i'm gonna fly away from this situation and i did it fucking rad dreams are cool i wish i had dreams all the fucking time that is pretty rad now didn't didn't you i know i did did you sleepwalk as a kid because i did i did not i I mean if i did no one told me yeah i did sleepwalk as a kid and i remember because it was always whenever i would stay in weird places like when i wouldn't stay in my own home um i did it once when i was a kid and my parents told me, because we used to have, like, a deadbolt and, like, a chain on our door because we were poor. And so we had, like, you know, 18 locks That's on our door. That's the security. Yeah. And uh, my parents said they found me one time where I had opened the door and I was trying to go out, but it was locked by the chain so I couldn't get out. So I was, like, at the front door trying to get out. And then <laughs> every other time it was when I would travel and I would be in someone else's house. So I remember when I was staying, I stayed with my aunt and uncle for a family reunion and he had one of those old wooden houses where everything the floor was wooden so it was like old woods like when you took one step it creaked like that was just the house yeah Um, you walk down the stairs it sounded like the whole place is falling apart because it's just the wooden stairs and i remember my grandparents told me that i came in stood in the doorway of their room and just stared at them and it was one of those houses that had like you know hall lights or whatever so it's like very dim and you see the shadow of this little boy just like staring at them so i was the creepy kid uh, at one point in my (laughs) life where i would just like sleepwalk around now, I don't do it. Any, I haven't slept walk since I was like a kid kid, like when I was like seven, eight years old. But I did a few times. I remember, all, you know, when I when I would travel and I would stay, I remember staying at a friend's house overnight and his parents said they saw me sleepwalking. So I did sleepwalk as a kid. So maybe I astral projected. I have no fucking idea. But yeah, I did that a few times. But the sleep paralysis thing was way scarier because it was more real. Well, I wouldn't say recent. It was in like the last 10 years. Um, but when that happened, it's just freaky. And I think it's, I say, I don't think it's real because I think I just fell into a deep sleep when i was napping which normally yeah. you don't like when you nap you don't normally fall into like a hard rim sleep and i think yeah. in those times i did fall into a hard rim sleep and it kind of freaked me out because i couldn't quite wake up you know like yeah you yeah know? so i think that's more what it was but it was freaky because like i was kind of like half awake half not you know and like yeah but it was so freaky because i remember like i'm like i can't move my arms i'm mm-hmm. like i'm like the chick in seinfeld who doesn't move her arms when she walks i can't move right now um <laughs> So yeah, so that was me. Yeah, I mean, dreams are a great, um, they're a great template, I think, for horror. Yeah. And they play with it. I mean, they don't really do dreams here. They, they really focus on astral <laughs> projection, which, you know, the family sort of like waved off his dreams when, he, when uh, little Dalton was really just going to other places. He had this ability to go to other places. Yeah, kids are scary. I'm just saying that. Kids are <laughs> yes, scary. Don't, they didn't, are. You, didn't you say your kids sleepwalked? Didn't you say they did? They, they, uh, they did when they were like really little. It was really sleepwalking it was just more of like they'd come in the room and like stand there and wait for you to like put yeah that's what like they, you, you, you said you tell me one time that they'd stand like over 
<laughs> you're like, sleeping. You're like, what the fuck, the man? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to kill me? That's some scary ass shit. Yeah, that would like that. I would be like, dude, that's an easy way to get punched. Like, I don't care if you're ten years old or not. That is a hundred percent guaranteed way to get punched. Because uh, that would freak me the fuck out right there. Like, that, that's an, you telling me that story right there is enough for me. Like, yep, don't need kids. Oh yeah, I could do a whole horror movie on just those experiences. Like, the, like all the visuals are great. <laughs> Dude, that's why you're so prepared for horror films. You're like, you want a real horror film? Live with my children. Uh, you want a real horror film? Just like the first ten minutes of this movie, where like they're unpacking their house and they got three children and a screaming baby. I go, maybe this whole movie is just a metaphor for how fucking horrible it is to have kids. <laughs> Oh, man. All right, let's get into categories. And we kick things off as we do each and every week in the show. But before we get to categories, I always like to mention, as we do at the top of the show, as the, we do. the Rewind of the Living Dead t-shirt it is out mm-hmm. there. It is still available. You can buy one right now. Mm-hmm. Just go to rewindoftheLivingDead.bigcartel.com. Place your order. Size is small through 2XL. Beautiful shirts. Beautiful uh, hand, hand, what is it? What do they call ring spun cotton? Screen, screen printed. Yes, yeah, screen printed ring spun cotton shirts. Four point two ounce rings, uh, uh, ring spun cotton shirts. Beautiful. Same company that does fry rag shirts. So I wanted to go to somewhere that would make similar because fry rags. I'm actually wearing a fry rag shirt right now. My Evil Dead Rise shirt. Um, same company. Jason Ragosta, the artist, made an incredible image. Buy it. Buy it! Why aren't you buying one right now? You love cool horror shirts. You need your Rewind of the Living Dead shirt. It's fucking cool. Like, I, yes, I'm biased, but also it's factual. This is a fucking cool shirt. And I will say one of the coolest experiences I had before we started selling the shirt, I wore the shirt. And I went to a convention in Pittsburgh last year uh, to meet John Carpenter. I uh, never met John Carpenter. I I think I've told this story on the show. I'll tell a brief version of this. Years ago, there was a horror convention in Detroit, and they were doing like a Devil's Reject, Devil's Rejects reunion, and Sid Haig was going to be there. And I didn't go because I was like, oh, it's a three-hour drive to Detroit. I don't really want to do it, so I'm just not going to go. And then like a year and a half later, sadly, Sid Haig passed away. And if you haven't heard it on the show, we've never reviewed the movie, but The Devil's Rejects is probably my favorite horror film of all time. I love The Devil's Rejects, and I freaking love Sid Haig as Captain Spaulding. And ever since then, I was like, oh, man, I just I regret that so much that I like I was so lazy. I didn't want to drive three hours to meet a guy that I absolutely adore. Could have met him, got an autograph, all that kind of stuff and didn't happen. Um, so from then on, I was like, okay, I'm not going to do that again. So when Tom Atkins appeared at a horror convention from Halloween three, I loved that movie. Went and met him, went and met Robert England last year, which was high point of my life possibly because that's my all time favorite franchise Nightmare on Elm street. But yeah, John Carpenter was appearing in Pittsburgh. And so I was like, I got to meet John Carpenter. Like I got to meet like the guy who's directed some of my favorite horror films of all time. And I wore my Rewinded Living Dead t-shirt. And as I was speeding through the convention center to go to the booth where John Carpenter was appearing, someone stopped me and they're like, hey, I like that podcast. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah. And this is before we did video. So they didn't know what I looked like, I guess. And I was like, yeah, that's my podcast. He's like, really? And I was like, yeah. And so, yeah, they actually stopped me. And it was actually somebody that worked at the... um, the zombie museum in Pittsburgh. There's a zombie museum in, in Monroeville mall where they filmed uh Dawn of the dead, the original Dawn of the dead, George Romero's Dawn of the dead. He worked there and he stopped me. He's like, Hey, I know your podcast. So I was like, Holy shit. That's cool. So rock our t-shirt, 
get recognized at horror conventions. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You'll run into all the other people like that that are that are huge Rewinded Living Dead fans, like uh, Barbara Hershey, uh, John Carpenter, <laughs> uh, Patrick Wilson. I, I can go on and on. All these people are huge fans, and when you're wearing our shirt at a horror convention, they're gonna be like, "Holy shit, I love that podcast!" And yeah. that's a hell of a shirt. Yeah, there you go. So go buy the shirt. RewindedTheLivingDead.BigCartel.com. All right. Back to uh, back to Insidious. Uh, so we're going to kick things off as we do each and every week here on the show with best performance. So Patrick in Insidious, who is your best performance? My best performance in Insidious goes to Lynn Shay, who played Elise Rainier, um, who was our resident medium, who is our the, the person who's going to solve the the case of why Dalton is stuck in the further. Um, the, the only other place like I really, really know her from, like, like just is she's burned into my brain is from Happy Gilmore. Uh, she she was in the in the early part. I was it Happy Gilmore. I can't I can't I don't remember. It was, she was one of these Adam Sandler goofy movies and she had a great role in there. Um, in this movie, she does have the similar presence to the woman from um, uh, Poltergeist. She there's something about her. There's an air about her that really works. And when she's in the house and there's a great scene when she finally goes into Dalton's room and she like looks up and it's great camera work by by James Wan's cinematographer um, with the ceiling fan going and she's kind of looking up and she's and and there's just enough of uh, obscurity that she can't quite see what's happening up on the up on the ceiling and there's nothing there but she can see what is there. She sells it so well. Yeah. And there's nothing there again, you know, low budget movie. So they don't they don't go and try or try all the tricks what they do is they just put the camera in the right place and they point point it at a good actor who can sell it and lynn lynn shay in my opinion sells very well in this movie so when lynn shay popped up again i had never seen this when she popped up and i had no i knew i knew patrick wilson and rose byrne were in this movie i honestly had no idea that, that lynn shay was in this movie um when lynn shay pops up i pause the movie and I told my girlfriend, I was like, hey, do you, do you know who that is? And she's like, no. And I was like, that's Lynn Shay. She is in Nightmare on Elm Street. She plays the teacher in Nightmare on Elm Street because her brother, Robert Shay, was the head of New Line Cinema. Her brother was the one who championed Nightmare on Elm Street originally from Wes Craven. And she's had deep ties to that franchise ever since. And she's had deep ties to a lot of horror franchises. So I recognized her immediately from that. I uh, was like, hey, Nightmare on Elm Street, um, which, you know, that's my franchise. So, yeah, that's where I knew her from. Yeah, she did play really good in this, in this movie. Um, um, kind of. By the way, she was the tan. She was the tan woman in uh, something about Mary. That's that's. Oh, uh, that's what about. it was. Yeah, it yeah. was not. It was not Adam Sandler. It was the Fairly Brothers. Anyway, yeah. sorry, you were saying. No, yeah, now I know what you're talking about. Too. I was like, Happy Gilmore, really? What? Um, <laughs> she wasn't the grandma. Um, <laughs> anyway, so yeah, like she was really good in that role, and she like unlike her, <laughs> which is funny when you hear us talk about favorite character. A little spoiler here: we're actually going to talk about goofy characters. Um, but she wasn't goofy. She was very serious and like somber. Yeah. And, and and also what I liked about her performance also, uh, very, again, akin to Poltergeist, was she was very calming. Like she wasn't like yeah. panicked. She was just like, here's what's happening and here's why it's happening. Mm-hmm. Knowing that the parents on the inside, especially Rose Burns character, is freaking the fuck out, and rightfully so, uh, she has a very calming influence on the whole scene. And I kind of did, I kind of like that about her performance that she wasn't manic, because you know as well as I do, they could be manic, and you don't always understand a manic performance because you know your kid's in a coma, the kid is actually trapped in a weird nether region of limbo or whatever with with demons and shit, uh, <laughs> hanging out with meatloaf. Uh, <laughs> you might be a little freaked out too, but she. 
she's not manic. She's very calm, very like, you yeah. know, very, I like that. I like that performance. She's what you would need to be in that situation, which yeah. is calm and to reassure these people and to for, form some sort of trust with them because they're, you're, tr- you're entrusting her with something that is absolutely ludicrous on its face. Yeah. And she's got to sell all that. So she, yeah, she, she did. She had a dynamite performance. Yeah. So my best performance, I give it to Rose Byrne who played, is it Renee Lambert? Is that what her name Renee, was? I Renee. Think yeah. is, I think that's how you say it. Yeah. Renee it's Lambert. Spelled weird. Yeah. Spelled weird. The wife, of course, the wife. Um, the reason I liked her performance so much, Rose Byrne's a great actress and typically she's in a lot of comedies. You know, she does a yeah. lot of comedy work. She did Bridesmaids. Um, she was in uh, Get Into the Greek, which is hilarious. That's a, she's a great yeah. performance in that. Um, I know her more from comedies than horror but obviously she has been in several of these insidious films and these are all horror but she does such a good job of playing the terrified wife you you and i know that like it's it's like you know there are certain skills that you have as an actor that like there there are actors you and i both know there are actors out there very good actors who just let's say i'll never do a comedy because i don't have that timing comedy is all about timing and they're like, I can't, I don't have it. Like, I just, it's not in me to do that kind of film. And they don't, they could be incredibly Oscar winning level actors. They're just not built for comedy and not to throw out any names, but there are examples of actors who do comedy and you're kind of like, you shouldn't do comedy um, <laughs> or vice versa. You know, like comedy actors, like you love it when, you know, an Adam Sandler can do an uncut gyms or, or you can see a Jim Carrey do the Truman show and they do more serious roles. You're like, wow, that's really well done. But they're also the other side where actors who do comedy, they're like, ah, just, I'm not that guy. I'm not that dude. I comedy is my bread and butter. Like, and I can't go much deeper than that. And that's fine. Totally fine. Horror is another one of those where acting scared is a real skill. Like it's a mm-hmm. legitimate skill to sell it because you're still acting. Now we know that, Actors will go method sometimes, and we know that, like, sometimes when they do, like, a slasher film, we've heard stories about, or, like, a great example was Silence of the Lambs, which we reviewed a few weeks ago, that uh, Jodie Foster said in interviews she was terrified of Anthony Anthony Hopkins because she never met him. She never hung out with him on set. The only time she interacted with him was when she was Clarice and he was Hannibal Lecter, and it made it that much scarier for her because she never got to know him as a person. She only knew him as this you know, villainous character. So we know that there's that ability, and, and people do go there to get these kind of performances. But in this one, you're dealing with green screens. You're dealing with, you know, you're not dealing with, you know, I mean, yeah, some there are there are practical effects in this film. But, you know, if you see the red faced demon in front of you, you probably laugh in reality. You wouldn't actually be scared of that in that moment. She sells it really well. And she's the one who recognizes right away something is wrong and we need to do something about it. And so I really appreciate her performance. Playing terrified is not easy. No, it is not easy. I, I I don't know if I could do it. I've never tried, but it looks hard. I know I couldn't. I know I ain't got that in me. I just couldn't. <laughs> we'll do see, it. Damon. We could, it's like the scene in I I made another Seinfeld reference. So it's like the scene in Seinfeld where Kramer gets a line in a uh, in a movie, and they're all trying to like <laughs> they're all trying to like fake laugh or whatever to like you know, laugh at the line, and uh, none of them do it well. And I'm just like, yeah, and, you know, Jerry Seinfeld was never really a good actor to begin with. Um, But it's just, like, really funny. Like, it's not easy. You think you can do it? (laughs) Try it. It's not easy. It's not. It's really not. Let's talk about favorite character, uh, because there's only so many characters, actually not a lot, until the the Ghostbusters show up. There's only, like, three or four central characters in this whole thing. Um, So, Patrick, who is your favorite character in uh, Insidious? 
Despite the fact that I complained about the goofiness of our Ghostbusters, of, of Elise's associates, my favorite character was Tucker, played by Angus Sampson. Um, he, he, he was kind of a more burly, kind of swarthy uh, of the two. The other, the other guy was Lee Winnell, um, the, the great director, writer, and actor himself. Um, but yeah, I really liked Tucker. Like Something about him just stood out. Like He didn't seem like anybody else there. Um, and he, he got the biggest laugh out of me um, in, in the movie. Also, Damon, do you recognize him from a little show called Fargo? Yes, that's right. That's He's right. Bear from Fargo. And the, by the way, Patrick Wilson stars in Fargo. So I want I and there's no connection of, with Fargo in this. I wonder if Patrick Wilson and, and Angus Sampson are buddies. And he was like, you want a guy named Bear? You should talk to my my buddy Angus. That's true. I never even thought about that. Good pull. Yeah, I forgot about that. That's a great show, by the way. Incredible yeah, that show. season. Uh, that's a great season of Fargo. Yeah, absolutely. Um. Yeah, he was great, and it's kind of funny. I said that even though we were kind of talking about how the Ghostbusters kind of took us out out of this movie, it kind of changed tones of the film, and again, doesn't ruin it. It just it just altered the the kind of scary, somber feeling that this movie had through the first half of it. Funny enough, my favorite character was Specs, which was played by Lee Wanell, and the reason I liked him one. I enjoyed his interpreter role when he is like interpreting the voice and the, and the, the scribbling in the notes that again, that legitimately was one of my favorite moments of the movie because it was just creepy without hitting you over the head with being creepy. I enjoyed that. That was a really good scene. The gas mask, the whole thing was really creepy, but the line that got me and you're going to laugh at this one, but the reason why ultimately specs is my favorite character is when they're going into the house for the first time and he sees that, uh, Josh has a star Trek, uh, action figure and he goes, Oh wow. Starfleet series one should have left it in the box. And I was like, yeah. that is me. That is 100% <laughs> something I would say to people be like, wow, this is a collectible should have left it in the fucking box. <laughs> there, there is a alternate universe where you and I play those two guys that yeah. exists somewhere in the multiverse. You and I are, are, are Tucker and Specs. Yeah, but that line got me. I was like, see, that's something I would say. You don't take him out of the box. Come on now. <laughs> yeah, that would be me. I like that. Uh, let's talk about best ghoul because there were a lot of ghosts in this movie. There were uh, a lot of different ghosts by the end of the movie. We talked about we kind of get bombarded with ghosts in the second half of the movie. So, uh, Patrick, who was your favorite ghoul in uh, Insidious? My favorite ghoul, so many damn ghouls in this movie. Like there's a lot. And and that I think that's another thing I want to actually give a little bit of credit to this movie is that they don't just pick one entity to haunt these people. It's like a lot of them. And yeah. there's a main one, obviously. But my favorite was the long haired fiend played by Jay LaRose. Um, and it, early on, I think it was one of my one of my favorite scares in the movie um, where I think Rose Byrne is, is is sitting in bed or laying in bed and she can see that somebody's walking past the window, which is a great classic play on fear. I remember when I was a kid and I'm sure, you know, you had this experience too. I didn't grow up. I grew up rather poor. You get like shitty windows with a bad screen on them and stuff. And just somebody, somebody, you know, where I live, somebody could just fucking walk by. Like yeah. anybody could walk by. It's kind of freaky. And that and and this guy is like walking back and forth outside the window, and you're like, "What the fuck is that?" And she's like trying to inspect more, and she's freaking out. And all of a sudden, he's in the fucking room. And uh, and uh, I just loved his design. He just sort of looked like um, he looked like Sting from uh, from wrestling. Well, yeah, he looked a little bit like Voldemort from Harry Potter too. He had no nose, like he was like almost yeah, like a faceless, kind of cut up. like a faceless he, demon in a way, like kind of you know, kind of faceless in a way. 
Yeah, and to me, he was just the most kind of vicious and scary. Because yeah. once you get to the flame face guy, he's less scary. We kind of talked about that earlier. Um, so yeah, I, to me, I was like, dude, this long haired fiend is kind of he's kind of cool in in his own in his in his own weird way. But he's also to me probably the 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 scariest of the ghouls. Yeah, that was that was I enjoyed him. Now, my my favorite. It's a weird one because it was one I almost picked this for my favorite scare. But I decided to go for best ghoul instead, and that is the dancing boy. Um, And the reason why I picked him, and again, I almost picked him for best scare, but there was a moment, because I, again, I had never seen this movie, and uh, I was watching with my girlfriend who had seen this years ago. They move into the new house, and Rose Byrne's character is doing laundry, and she's like doing housekeeping around the house. It's daytime, and again, I'm a big, big fan when you can try to pull off good scares during the daytime because they're not supposed to be scary. It's supposed to always be at nighttime when you're sleeping or whatever. And she walks into her laundry room, and you see this little boy just like staring against the wall, and he's all in black and white. And when that scene happened and they walked in, I was like, because again, I'm watching this in my house, like, oh, fuck that. Like that. And my <laughs> girlfriend's like, what? And I was like, the little boy. And she's like, what are you talking about? And I rewatched. She didn't see it at first because it's such a flash moment. Like you just see him standing like they, they don't. She doesn't see it. So she just walks past him and then goes on doing her shit. And then that's when you know, he pops out again. He puts on the weird, uh, the tiny Tim, whatever the, the, yeah. the tiptoe through the window. Yeah. yeah that whole thing. Um, <laughs> that's when he pops out. And I was like, you didn't see him. Cause it, it is, it's, it's very like, just matter of fact, he's just standing against the wall and you, he is kind of like just there. And so you don't necessarily see him. And so when she walks past my girlfriend's like, what are you talking about? And I rewound and she was just like, oh shit. Like she didn't notice it even then. She was like, oh shit. And like, I saw it and I was like, nope, nope, nope. Fuck that. Uh, and that's like the moment when you realize it wasn't the house. It was the kid that was haunted. Uh, but I like that. And I like that little boy just like, and then he jumps out of the, the, uh, the, the dresser, the, the, uh, the bureau. She opens yeah. the door and he comes popping out laughing. I was like, oh no. And listen, <laughs> I don't have children, but I will fully admit children are terrifying. Okay. (laughs) Children are scary. All right. So that child scared me. So that's why he was my favorite goal. That, that rolls right into my best scare, which was, it was the, the dancing boy with his face against the wall. Um, I remember now this is swinging all the way back to the beginning of the, of the, of the podcast. When I tell you about my friend Miggs, he had already seen the movie. He was clearly very scared of this little boy. And Miggs is like you. He's a big dude. Like, you don't see, you don't, there, there doesn't seem to be a reason the big dude should be scared of a child. But yet it happens. And so when he was like, he's like freaking out breathing. He was like bracing himself because the kid was going to appear again. Yeah. And, and I love, I absolutely love, it is my favorite scare when she's walking around doing that laundry. And blink and you'll miss it, but he's standing there in that corner. And when I was watching it with my wife, she went, what was that? What was that? What was that? And I go, what was what? I started fucking with her. Yeah. She goes, there was like, there was like somebody like standing in a corner. I didn't see anything. No, 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 no. It's like, it's a great, it's a great scare. Oh, I told, I told my, so my girlfriend didn't see it. I did. I was like, nope, fuck that. And she's like, what? And I was like, the little boy. And she's like, what are you talking about? She knew it was there. And she and when I rewound it, she saw it. She's like, nope. Like, she had the same reaction, even though she knew it was coming. I was like, watch for the little boy. Because it is very quick. 
but it's yeah. just and he's off to the corner and she's like she's here on the one side and the little boy's in the corner so you really you do have to be paying attention to it like it is very quickly you move past it he's facing the wall he doesn't move it's not like he's jumping out at it or anything like he's just standing there and yeah you can blink and you miss it but when i saw it even i was like nope 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 it's nope. fucking freaky dude it's super freaky like yes. it's, it's great it's my favorite scene. and like i said even rewinding it telling my girlfriend it was there it's still got like she didn't she knew it was coming and she's like nope nope mm -mm, nope none of this yeah it was really 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 well done i like that one a lot so that was probably overall one of my favorite scares honestly because it was the one that kind of got me to where i was just like nope mm -mm." and that's also the moment where you realize the house isn't haunted it's something else and that's also kind of like that is the moment when you realize that so i would say legitimately that's probably my favorite scare but Instead of just giving my favorite scare talking about the same one you picked, let's talk about the big one, the one that gets everybody, which you mentioned, strangely enough, they give away in the trailers, yet when you watch any like scariest moments in horror history, including the great series that was on Shudder, hey Shudder, um, anytime you see that, that's the moment. That is the one that gets everybody. It's when Barbara Hershey's character is sitting there talking to Josh, her son, you t they're doing the back and forth camera work which again this is this is horror movie 101 and it's so brilliantly executed josh is here camera on him josh camera's on barbara hirsch's character you go back to josh's and there's the red-faced demon screaming behind him and barbara hirsch's character freaks the fuck out now did it get me in the moment no it didn't because i totally saw it coming but that's also because to be fair i know the technique I recognize yeah. the technique of what they're doing. It's just like we talked about Jennifer's body last week when she opened the door and closed the door. I just assumed Jennifer would be behind the door because that's yeah. the classic. When you open the door, there's nothing there. You close the door. Somebody's there. That's classic horror movie. One Oh one. When they did the pan back and forth, I knew something was coming because that is a classic horror movie technique. Now, by the way, it's classic because it does work. I'm just yeah. used to it. I just know yeah. it. I see it and I recognize it. But it was still pretty good. Like, I'll say it was still pretty good with that the screaming face demon, like literally like gapped mouth, wide eyed, painted up, which, by the way, the actor who plays is actually called the lipstick face demon uh, oh, played okay. by That's Joe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> lipstick face demon played by Joseph Bashara, who is actually the guy who does the score for Insidious. Huh. He's actually a composer. Um, and he's the one who plays the lipstick face demon. That is how you stretch your budget, folks. That's hey, composer, exactly. uh, get over here. We need someone who we haven't used yet. <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be now an iconic horror horror, uh, horror icon. Um, can, can you I sing? Wanna, I also, can you sing? Can you sing? Can you sing uh, anything? Uh, I'll do anything for love. Can you do that one also <laughs> while you're in there? Yeah, can you, can you can you just recreate the fucking scene from Meat Loves Music video? Um, <laughs> I, I will give a special uh, a special award to Tiny Tim for best uh. care, because now that song Tiptoe by the Window, if you've seen this movie and you hear that song, you immediately go back to that. Yeah. It's like it's incredible because like I I give a shit. I knew Tiny Tim from like the Howard he used to go in the Howard Stern show all the time, like way back in the day. And he's an odd character, weird, weird guy who plays the ukulele and sings very strangely. And it just paired so well with that ghost. And now forever, if I hear that song, it gets, it gets under my skin in that way. What's funny about that is, is I, I'm on TikTok a lot. I love TikTok and I follow a lot of horror creators on there. And a lot of the TikTok 
videos I watch with like scary books or, or like uh, movie recommendations. They have music underneath them and they'll just flash like read this book. It's this and those music playing underneath. Um, and that song is one of the ones that everybody uses because it's so effective. Well, me, I didn't know what it was from. It's creepy sounding regardless. It's the tiptoe through the window. It's a very weird. <laughs> song. But I didn't know what it was from. And then when it popped on in the movie, I was like, hey, that's what I, that's why everyone uses this song. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I didn't know. But, yeah, it is a very creepy song. And I actually obviously wrote that into our intro tonight. Um, yeah, it is very creepy. And that's what the little boy play, starts playing that that record. And it's almost it almost sounds like there's something wrong with the record, the way it sounds. It's yeah. like tiptoe through the window. <laughs> and that is tiny tim that yeah. is how he sings yeah it there's, was no, there's no alteration there yeah it's free and I, I that was one of, in that moment i actually told my girlfriend i was like that's freaky for not any reason because that's actually how he sounded i was like it's like looking back have you seen photos of kids dressing up from halloween in like the 20s oh, yeah. yeah that is that freaky. is that is scarier than any <laughs> horror movie ever made just look at vi- look at photos from how kids dressed up as for Halloween in like the 1920s. It is fucking terrifying. <laughs> it is the That's scariest. It is the scariest visual I've ever seen. Watch looking at these old black and white photos of kids dressed up in Halloween costumes from the 20s and 30s. Oh, my God. Those would be some great ghouls for an insidious movie. Seriously freaky. Yeah, that's and I was like, that's just like that's just how they dressed at the time. But to <laughs> me, they're terrifying, just like the Tiny Tim song. Like it's not really terrifying, but when you hear it, it is. Yeah, no shit. Um, let's talk about one of our categories that we always talk about now, which is sequel, remake, or leave it alone. Now, this was a little harder to do because we obviously know this film was sequelized four times and there's a fifth one coming out next week, which we are going to review on this podcast insidious, the red door uh, insidious fives. So there's five of these films. Um, so it's harder to talk about sequel remake or leave it alone when we talk about, you know, this, this category, but I don't know, like I still want to tackle it because I feel like, you know, sequels are such a staple of the horror genre. Yeah. You expect them. You expect them now. Here's where I'm going to talk about with this category real quick, Patrick. I want to give credit to the end of this film because just when it seems like they've solved the problem, Dalton has been brought out of his, his, you know, further slumber, whatever you want to call it, his astral projection coma. And it feels like everything's right with the world again. You realize that when Josh traveled, the old creepy lady who's been haunting him and looking for him since basically he was a child finally got him. And she's the one who comes back through when he wakes up from the astral projection. And the film basically ends on a cliffhanger that he's been possessed by this demon. The entire concept is that these creatures, these undead souls they're obsessed with the living because they're not living anymore. So they want to attach themselves to a living human host, like a parasite so they can cross back over into our world. I really appreciated that twist ending. Now, did it set up the sequel? Yes, absolutely. But I appreciated that it ended on that note. There was no happy ending here. There was an ending where we find out the little boy got saved, but now that dad got drawn into it, not only did he get drawn into it, the creature finally got his claws into him. And I appreciated that twist. So I know I'm not saying should it be sequelized. We know it got sequelized. The way they set up the sequel in the original film 
was really well done. I enjoyed that because you know there's going to be a sequel. We knew as soon as it's successful, made $100 million, there's going to be an Insidious 2. The fact that they set it up so well, though, to where you actually have a reason to come back for Insidious 2 made me appreciate the ending of this film. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That is a that's a cool way to kind of get into a sequel like cuz obviously Blumhouse and James Wan were pretty proud of what they had and they were like this we we know this is going to franchise itself for sure and they they called their shot ahead of time um and it was a unique way in because basically and I haven't seen any of the sequels but I read up on them. Um but the part 2 is basically uh trying to figure out how to how to prove his innocence because he kills Elise at the end of this movie. Yeah. Because because the the ghoul that has attached herself to him has attacked Elise, right? To kind of maybe just to to kind of keep herself in this realm, she she kills the the medium that uh, that that could have, you know, excised her. And so the part 2 is them trying to trying to clear his name, trying to clear Josh's name. Um, is and then there's the subsequent sequels I think are about different moments in Elise's life. They actually go back to Elise. Um, and it seems like part five is going to be about the red door. I think we're returning to our roots in part five. Yeah, this is this way. is Patrick Wilson and Rose Byrne coming back. Yeah. Like I know that's yeah. what it is. Yeah, but I appreciate. So but I appreciated that they went like that was a cool little twist, like actually ending it on a bit of a cliffhanger, um, and basically not a happy ending. Like the little boy gets saved, but now the dad gets taken. And I thought that was kind of because you and I both know. This film makes $100 million on a $1 million budget or $1.5 million budget. All they're going to do in the sequel, you and I both know it, is the haunting start again because the little boy is astral projecting again and he's somehow drawing these things back Something, to him. Something, yeah. That's 100% or what the sequel is. new case did. somewhere else. Yeah. yeah, it's one of the two. Like, And, and then maybe uh, you know, at some point, excuse me, some point during that movie, like Rose Byrne and, and Patrick Wilson's character show up like, we know what you're going through. Right. 100% that's the easy sequel to these films when you don't plan it. The fact that they planned it so well that Patrick Wilson's character got like possessed, for back, lack of a better word, by that old lady demon, that was a cool twist. Like I was like, that's a way to set up a sequel because not only did you not give us the happy ending we saw coming, but you actually gave us an inroad to continue this franchise that isn't the generic... You know, we didn't have a plan, but now we do. Because you and I both know, like, it's like one of the most frustrating... Like, one of my favorite TV series of all time is Lost. I still love it to this day. I absolutely do. But they introduced all this mythology early on. And when you talk to Damon Lindelof and Carlton Cuse and all the people who are creating it, they're like, we had no plan. Like, there was no grand plan. That's why, for better or worse shows you know nowadays like when they say look, we have a five season arc we know where the beginning is we know where the end is we it'll take us different roads to get there but we know how this show's going to end you know better call saul which is a brilliant show they're like we always knew how that was going to end breaking bad they knew how they wanted it to end they didn't know how they were going to get there but they knew how they wanted it in when lost started they had no idea like they had to just make shit up and then like they're trying to solve their own problems they created for themselves uh which again i still love lost i still one of my favorite shows of all time but like people got upset and angry because they're like hold on this like this never got solved and they're like well we really didn't have a plan for that I like that they went into this having a plan. Like they went into it actually having a strategy of going on to part two, not just, oh, this film was successful. Well, let's go back to it. Except this time it's the other brother who gets possessed or the baby gets possessed. Or as you said, it's some other family. And then at some point during the film, Patrick Wilson shows up as the Elise character. You know what I mean? Like that's the yeah. other version of this sequel. 
Yeah, that is the that is the other version, and they didn't do that again. This movie's rather innovative. It really is the start of something new in horror. We we can credit it that way. Um, but to answer the actual question, Damon, I'm going to say something a little bit controversial. Remake. Okay. I would like to see this movie remade with a big old budget. Like, let's go. Let's see it big. Keep the spirit of the scares and up the budget. And here's another thing I'm going to say to you, Damon, that is going to be maybe even more hot of a take. So, you know, break out the the lemonade because about to get hot in here. Not have James Wan direct it. Because I think James Wan sticks to a style and that's fine. It's okay. I don't think I needed James Wan style to make this movie. There's a lot of James Wan isms in this movie that actually, in my opinion, don't work. That work great in other movies. It worked great in Malignant. It works great in Saw. It works great in The Conjuring. I don't think some a lot of those elements I think didn't work in this movie. I think they're actually kind of messy a little bit. Yeah. So I say remake with no James Wan with a lot more money. A, I really like that plan. That's a good idea. Would you make it R-rated or PG-13? Um, I don't think it matters because I do think that the way the scares were set up, it was scary enough without ever seeing a drop of blood. I agree. So I, I don't think it, it, it doesn't matter to me. And I, I actually heard a great thing from James Mangold. Uh, shout out to the Happy Sad Confused podcast. Josh Horowitz is a buddy of mine. Um, he had James Mangold on. He goes, rated R isn't just for blood, guts, and nudity. He goes, sometimes it's just to explore something more. Sometimes it's just to take time with something because it doesn't need to be marketed and it doesn't need to be, uh, you know, marketed towards kids and merchandise. So when you you have like a freedom in rated R to just have a longer conversation between two characters and to have something more serious happen. And I was like, yeah, I, I fuck with that, you know, and maybe that maybe that's what this movie needed. I don't yeah. know. But I would like to see a remake. You know what I'd like? You, know, you say when you as soon as you say that, I'm like, okay, I'm intrigued. But you know what I'd be interested by? And by the way, I want to give credit to Chris. James Wan is a good director. He's a very good director. Mm-hmm. Lee Wan is a great writer. Oh yes, um, a guy who knows how to make a really good haunted house story. I mean, in my opinion, the best haunted house story I've ever seen. Imagine a Mike Flanagan mm. insidious because yeah. to me, the first season the, the haunting of Hill house is the best haunted house story ever. In my opinion, it's the one that literally it scared me. There were moments in that show that fucking freaked me out. I don't know if you have you seen the haunting of Hill house. The no. first I, I watched the first episode and never got through it. The, 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 the show is legitimately scary. There are moments that really fuck with you and it's really well done. And it's the first, it's the first haunted house movie that really got me because I, as I said earlier, I'm kind of lukewarm on haunted house stories. Sometimes they are good. They are, there are really good ones out there. The changeling is a great example of that. Uh, George C. Scott 79, I think when it came out 81, something like that. Um, Mm. great movie, but by and large, it's like, sometimes they do get to feel generic. Mike Flanagan kind of reinvented the genre with the haunting of Hill house. I love that show. Incredible. Highly recommend it. Imagine a Mike Flanagan in I like that. I would be very curious to see how he does that. I like that very much. Look at us kind of like doing a, a little uh, sort of side re- rewrite of the living dead by going, let's remake it with a different director, a bigger budget and Mike Flanagan. And also, can we just stick to a lot of practical effects? Like, I'm not saying they didn't do oh, practical yeah. effects in this one, but I'm just I've. Let me get on a tangent here real quick, Patrick, before we get out of here. I've seen a couple of movies recently. They're not horror movies. 
I'm gonna throw them out there. The Flash. I know you're talking. The Flash talking. and the new Indiana Jones movie, which, by the way, you mentioned James Mangold. I like James Mangold. He's a pretty good director. I really like Logan. That was a great movie. The CGI and the digital effects lately, it's like, I don't know what's going on. Like, have we just finally crossed a border where it's just gone too far and we're relying way too much on digital effects? But those two movies in particular, which I think The Flash cost $200 million, Indiana, Indiana Jones cost like $300 million. Yeah. And the digital effects in this movie are abhorrently bad. Like, really, yeah, really bad. bad. Like, really bad. Um, I am so into practical effects and horror, and it's one, it's one reason I am so glad that horror is my favorite genre. Because while there are plenty of horror films with CGI and digital effects, and not all of them are bad, by the way. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm saying when it's done well, it can work really well. Yeah. But because typically horror doesn't get as much money... You know, they don't get the benefit of spending $20 million just on digital effects. They have to make do with other things. So even when you get a really successful horror film, like let's say Barbarian or Smile or, or films like that, that end up doing really, really well, they still didn't start out with a $200 million budget. That's just not how it works. So practical effects, and you think about a movie like Terrifier 2, which did incredibly well, all practical effects done by by Damien Leon, uh, Leon um yeah, like I love practical effects, so stick with that. I don't. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not saying this film didn't do that. Like Insidious didn't do that. But if you raise the budget, you, you, yeah, that could happen. And yeah. It doesn't need to happen. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like if you give them a fifty million dollar budget, that suddenly becomes like less digital. If no, don't, because no. man, there's nothing worse in this world than digitally added blood. It is the worst effect it is Still so bad. bad gunshots are particularly like that they use gunshots with digital effects with blood and it's so obviously bad <laughs> yeah it's no that there's there has been no cure yet for digital blood it still it still looks bad to this day. I'm like, wow, there it very obviously is fake blood. Yeah, it's so bad. So yeah, I'm all for it. Budget, Mike, Fly, the whole deal. Just please stick to practical effects because digital. I'm just I'm not saying it can't be done, but to me, you have a much smaller window of success when you use digital and CGI in a horror film, in my opinion. Yeah, I fully agree. Yeah, stay practical. All right, what about uh, can we survive this horror film? Because that's one of my favorite categories now, Patrick. We basically inject ourselves into whatever horror film we're watching. Maybe, as we said earlier, I'm Specs. I got the glasses. I'm Specs. You're Tucker. Are we surviving Insidious? Well, I put myself in this situation. I put myself in the Josh or even the Dalton situation, which is what if I was like legitimately like like grabbed and nabbed by these spirits or what if I'm put in this, I'm a dad. What if I was put in the situation Josh has put in? Can I survive? The answer is absolutely. And that's because of something we talked about earlier, which we did not plan, but we were talking about our dreams. And in many of my nightmares, I've been able to face down the scary thing. I've done it so many times. And it's like, it's kind of crazy to do because you are terrified in the moment, but you're like, Nope, I'm going to fucking come at you instead. Like you, I'm going to scare you out of my realm. So on my end of things, I go, I'm definitely surviving this. If I have to go into the further and face those, uh, those other worldly people, I'm ready for it. I've been training for it my whole life. I am the dream master, Damon. Look at you. Look at you being the dream master. So <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to say I will also survive, but for a much different reason. And I'm going to relay back to one of my favorite stand-up comedy routines from the <laughs> 1980s done by the brilliant Eddie Murphy called Delirious. And during that, he talks about horror films and how... <laughs> 
white people stay around way too fucking long in horror films. And he talked about Amityville horror. You know, they look in the they look in the toilet bowl and it's blood. And they're like, that's peculiar. Uh, you know, he's like, that, he's like, that's a hint and a half for your ass to get out of there. And he talked about poltergeist. So like, the little girl gets drawn in the television. He's like, he's like, I would have been gone. He's like, I would have been at the school. He's like, yeah, my daughter's in the television. Said like, well, didn't you do anything to try to save your daughter, Mister Murphy? He's like, yeah, I changed the channel. Shit didn't work. I got the fuck out. Uh, that's me. <laughs> Kids in the coma. You're telling me he's in a weird nether region. Guess what, honey? It's been a good run. Uh, I love you, but I'm I'm piecing the fuck out. Um, I'm not trying to be funny, but I am being funny by saying, like, listen, I would not stick around. Call me a coward. Call me a bad father. I don't have children. Call me a bad father. I'm out. I'm done. I'm out of there. You told me, and like, because as soon as because as soon as Elise tells Josh that he's basically the cause of this because he used to do the same thing. It's basically your fault. You've opened that door. I don't want the door open. Leave me the fuck alone. Leave the door closed. Okay. I've lived now like 40 years without that door being open. Leave it closed. <laughs> whoa, 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 just out of there. Yeah. dude. I'm just, I, I love that line from him. He's like, he's like, didn't you try to save your daughter? Yeah. I turned the channel. Shit didn't work. It got the fuck out. That's me. I'm like, well, you know, I turned the channel. Caroline didn't pop out of the TV set. So I guess I'm out of here. <laughs> hey to each their own pal i'm not gonna make you stay i'm just saying dude and that's what put me in josh's role because i'm not i can't control my dreams i am not the dream master uh i ain't sticking around for this shit no <laughs> like i'm out like i'm just like you know what yeah i've had a, it's been a good run honey um, i'm leaving you <laughs> with the kids uh i'll be in california give me a call um, I'm out of here. I'd be wringing my hands. I'd be chopping at the bit. I'm like, let's go. I'm yeah. ready to fuck fuck some ghouls up. Yep. So see, there's the reason why you're a father and I'm not, Patrick. This is like the whole point of the show. We've just learned we just learned right now which one of us is fitted for parenthood. <laughs> and it ain't me. Uh now I will say though, I do love my dogs, and if it was my dogs, I'd go to bat for them. So maybe I do have see, a little bit of parenting. There you me. go. Yeah. See? Yeah. You go to bat for your dogs. You'd easy. It'd be easy for, if it was your kids. If you're yeah. going for your dogs, it's just as easy. I would take a bullet for my dogs. I would absolutely take a bullet for my dogs. Uh, maybe there's a little bit of that there for me. But also, my dogs aren't astral projecting and fucking up the whole family is what I'm saying. <laughs> if so. you got dogs that are astral projecting, you're fucked. Because dogs are, you know, kind of unpredictable. <laughs> yeah. If, I'm astral, if they're astral projecting, then we're just all screwed at that point. So uh, <laughs> he's, he's running towards the trash. Get him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's running. He's chasing the bone. Oh, my God. <laughs> Uh, yeah. All right. Last category is always Patrick. When we talk about insidious, is it scary? So Patrick, at the end of the day, after rewatching this film for the first time in 13 years, is it scary? Uh, at the risk of being uh, told to sleep on the couch tonight. Yes, it's scary. Um, it scared the shit out of my wife. It scared the shit out of my, my homie, Big Migs. Um, it scared me for the first 20 minutes or so. And I think it's, it's actually laced with dread. Um, everything that's there for a horror movie, insidious has it. I feel like if I answered the other way that we'd have an up, uprising on our podcast because this is uh, like a film that is rated one of the scariest films of all time. And I, I agree. I get it. Like I do, even yeah. though it didn't get me in every single moment and I didn't jump no. and freak out. I get it. I get why this film is scary. Like I mm -hmm. do get it. The jump scares are really effective just because I saw them coming. Doesn't mean they're not effective. Um, it's just, I'm a weird freako who's seen a thousand you know, million horror films and I see things coming, but do I still understand it? Yeah. Did, there were a couple of moments that did make me tingle a little bit. The little boy was a great example of that where I was like, Oh shit. Um, <laughs> There were great moments. So yeah, it absolutely is scary. And again, I, I, 
I'm I'm going back and apologizing in a way for this film, saying that I'm I'm mad at myself waiting so long to have seen this when a big part of the two parts of the reason going back to the beginning of the show, it looked like a haunted house movie and I'm kind of lukewarm to haunted house movies and it was PG thirteen and immediately I was like, well, it's it's PG thirteen horror, it can't be that good. And I will stand by my statement that by and large that is a true thing to say. By and large, PG thirteen horror mil- movies are have not traditionally been great. Yeah, that's fair, right? Like, that's a fair statement. Yeah, yeah fair uh, enough. But this one works. And credit to James Wan and, and, and Lee Wanell for making a legitimately scary film with no blood, no gore, no real language. I think there's one F-bomb dropped in there uh, and just j- good, effective jump scares. And it works really well. And it, 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 it's a reminder that it can be done. And it, it makes me like, you know, eat a little bit of uh, crow when I say this. Like, I judge this movie unfairly simply because it was an R. It was a PG-13 rated horror film about a haunted house. Am I, that's what I thought it was. And yeah. I was like, I have no interest in this. It's just I know I'm not going to like it. I did like it for the most part. Did I bump up against stuff as we've already talked about? Sure. But it was still legitimately scary. It was a legitimately well done movie. It was different. It was unique. And I appreciate that. And so in that regard, my preconceived notion about this movie was wrong. And I'm I'm willing to admit that I was wrong judging this movie for no other reason than that. Let this be the day in history. Damon Martin admitted he was wrong. It doesn't happen very often, Patrick. I'll be the first not to admit that. Does doesn't happen does not happen very often that I'm wrong. So not uh, very often. So this is a, this this show gets a star next to it. It does. It gets a rare occasion where I'm like, you know what? I got this one wrong. And credit. Credit to James Wan Lee. And you know what? Yeah. I if I had been a bigger horror fan, like a more like astute horror fan, I was a horror fan, but if I had been a more more astute horror fan, I would have recognized it because Saw is great. We talked about that. And I actually really like Dead Silence. That film doesn't get nearly enough credit for how good that movie is. I really like Dead Silence. I got it on 4K recently and rewatched it. It's a really good horror film. I really enjoyed that film. And that was their second film together uh, after Saw. It, it bombed. It didn't do well. It found an audience later on like home video and stuff. But I, have you seen Dead Silence? I have not really, really good movie. So it kind of like, again, like knowing I've seen dead silence, knowing I've seen the conjuring, knowing I've seen, um, uh, um, saw, I was like, I don't know why I never gave this a chance. And I think that's what it was. It was just cause it was PG 13. I'm like, this can't be good. Well, guess what? It is good. So, uh, credit, is. credit to the ghost guys. So as we said, next week, our next episode is going to be talking about insidious five, the red door. That's where we go back to the Lambert family and like, I guess what is being sold is the conclusion of their story uh, from all the trailers and all the things I've read about it. This seems like it's the final chapter of the Lambert family dealing with these demons. So I'm very intrigued and interested to see that film that comes out this week. And we will be reviewing that on next week's podcast. So stick around. If you're an insidious fan, we will be back with that one next week. Mm-hmm. All right, folks, that is our show for this week. We appreciate everyone that tunes in each and every week to Rewind of the Living Dead. We appreciate you. Uh, make sure you check us out on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Amazon, Google, uh, and, of course, over on our YouTube channel. Make sure you find our YouTube channel. It's just Rewind of the Living Dead. And uh, subscribe to us over there. You can see our pretty faces if you really want to, or you can just listen to audio because it may be like you know seeing the red-faced demon staring back at you looking at us. Uh, 
we understand. We so, might scare Barbara Hershey. We don't want to do that. Yeah, we don't want to do that to Barbara Hershey. She's already been scared enough. So whatever floats your boat, listen to us, watch us, whatever you prefer. You got questions, comments, movies you'd like us to review. We just had a great fan on Instagram reach out to us a couple of days ago and gave us a list of movies. Uh, she's a big, big fan. We appreciate the messages like that. Whether it's a two-line message or, or, or a whole you know slew of messages, I don't care. We appreciate those who do reach out to us. So always, never hesitate uh, to reach out to us um, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, just search Rewind to the Living Dead. You can find our accounts there. Or you can always find us on our own uh, email. Let me shout out the email real quick. The email is rotlivingdead at gmail.com. That's rotlivingdead at gmail.com. And you can also find us on our own personal social media channels. I am at Damon Martin, and you are? At Director Patrick. And we will be back next week with more Rewind of the Living Dead as we jump back into Insidious 5, The Red Door. Make sure to come back for that episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you then. Tiptoe through the window. Mm-hmm.